You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Washing the Disciples' Feet John chapter 13 verses 1 to 20 Good evening my beloved brothers and sisters and young people. Well everybody has settled down into that upper room to keep the last supper as it were and of course nobody has taken notice of that bowl of water have they? And had they been listening to the teachings of the Lord uh, there should have been really quite a scramble for the honour of washing each other's feet but nobody's going to do that because as we saw last time brothers and sisters one of the things they were arguing about in that room as to who would be the greatest so nobody is going to pick up that that duty of washing each other's feet but John as we know prefaces this feast with that statement that the Lord knowing that his hour had come when he should depart unto the Father was thinking of others who would be left behind him and at the end of verse 1 he says having loved his own which were in the world he loved them unto the end now brothers and sisters that doesn't that word really doesn't mean the end as we would understand it it is the word teleos and it really means the point that is aimed at or as it's rendered in Thessalonians it, it really means to the uttermost there's no end the Lord's love he loved them to the absolute uttermost and you can't love a person beyond what he said in chapter 15 uh, that no greater love hath men than this uh, that they should lay down their lives for their friends. And that's what he was about to do for them. So that that was to the uttermost. No greater love could be shown, brothers and sisters, than that we should lay down our life for one another. And I don't believe that that simply means that at some state, if we were called upon to die for our brethren, we would do that. I think it means, brothers and sisters, that all during our life, no stage of our life, we were exempt from that. We should be forever be prepared to go out of our way for each other and to sacrifice for each other. If we're called upon to do something and it's going to benefit other people and we've got other plans and we don't want to do it, well, we've just got to do it. That's what we're called to, not because it's a duty, brethren and sisters, but because... The love of God has been spread abroad in our hearts through his word uh, that, that should be induced in us. We, we should want to do that. He loved them to the uttermost, says John. Having loved them throughout, he still went on loving them and went on to lay down his life for his friends. Well, John records in verse 2 there that supper being ended. Now, now that's not right either. That, that's not a good translation. And none of the reliable translations follow the AV there because supper is not ended, brothers and sisters. You, you will see over in verse 26, for example, uh, when he gives the sop that supper is well and truly in progress. It's not ended. Actually, and that's exactly what the Greek word indicates. As Rotherham puts it, supper being in progress. Uh, the emphasised Bible says it that way and, and so does the RSB. And it says there, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. That's an interesting word, brethren and sisters. 
to betray him. Actually, it literally means to yield him up. Now, I want to show you a couple of places where that word is used. For example, in Romans chapter 8. So, Judas is about to yield him up. He's going to deliver him, as, as the word can be understood to mean. Well, here's the same word. And in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, the Apostle says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? There's the same word. So Judas delivered him up, but so did God. And you know, brothers and sisters, it was, it was the major, one of the major thrusts of Peter's argument on, on the day of Pentecost when he had before him a huge crowd of Jews, many of whom, perhaps the vast majority of whom, had been involved in the street crowds at least, clamouring for the Lord's death, listening to him in absolute silence as he pointed out that what they thought was a victory for the scribes and Pharisees was an absolute triumph of God. It was an absolute triumph for God that a man should willingly go to that cross in the behest of his father to fulfil his father's will and the triumph over all that triumphs over all other men. That what causes all other men to sin absolutely triumphed over it and it was a magnificent triumph and yet they thought that they'd had a victory but they hadn't. And Judas might have been delivered him up, but Paul says God delivered him up. And he did. He yielded him. He delivered him up. Now look at another place where that word is found. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we know what that's about, don't we? We're going to come back here later on in the course of our discussions this evening. Now here we've got the word used twice. In that verse which most of the... The chairman commits on Sunday morning to read verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. Where the apostle says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now the word delivered and the word betrayed are exactly the same Greek word. Which I also delivered unto you that the, in the, that the Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was delivered, took bread. Now who's delivering him? Well, primarily, it's God that's delivering him. Crucified, brothers and sisters, by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The predeterminate counsel, gone long before it happened, and the foreknowledge of God, he knew all about that. And it was God that was delivering him. And yet, of course, it was Judas. Judas, with that black heart of his, that went out to betray his Lord for money. Yet the apostle says, in the same night in which he was delivered, I'm gonna, I've been delivering unto you what the Lord delivered to me. And so, brothers and sisters, we can see, can't we, that the, that those tragic and terrible circumstances were really the works of God. And yet Judas, of course, is not going to be excused for what he did any more than those pawns that God uses for his purpose, those evil people, those evil nations that he uses, any more than they will escape, brothers and sisters, for he is over and above all that. And it's him that's delivered his son. 
So we come back to John chapter 13. And we read in verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father hath given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. Now, brothers and sisters, that thought would have been provoked by the discussion they were having as to who would be the greatest. And the Lord didn't need to hear their audible voices to know what they were talking about. Because on another occasion, you remember that when they were walking behind him and he turned around and said, what were you discussing on the way? He knew what it was. He didn't have to hear their audible voices. He didn't need any that testified what was in man. He knew what was in man. And he knew what they were talking about. But he's sitting there knowing, absolutely knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. Not some things, not most things, all things. There was not a question in that room as to who was the greatest. And he wasn't thinking about being the greatest, of course, but the fact was he was the greatest. And the Father had committed into his hand all things. Where did that come from? Well, you know that the Apostle uses that over and again in his epistles. He talks about the all things uh, that have been committed into the hands of the Son. Well, how did he get all things? That comes from Psalm 8, brothers and sisters. This is what he would know. See, here it is. Verse 4. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honour. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. You know how many times the apostle uses that in his epistles. What's the context, brothers and sisters? Well, in order that he might have all things put under his feet, it was absolutely necessary that he be made a little lower than the angels. Isn't that interesting? So the Lord would know that why he was, what he was, a mortal man, biased to sin like every one of us who had never sinned, but felt the weight of that. He would know why that is. But he would know, brothers and sisters, that to trust in his Father and to successfully complete that work, that when, although I made a little lower than the angels, the day would come when the angels would be in his hand. Let all the angels of God worship him, said the Apostle in Hebrews chapter 1. Again, quoting the Psalms. The day would come when it would be all in his hands. And they are arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Now you look at Luke's record. We'll have a look at Luke and in, we'll look at, first of all at Luke's record in chapter 22. Where Luke puts together what John strings out in several verses in, in the 13th chapter. So in Luke 22 and verse 24 to 27, and there was also a strife among them which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors, but you shall not be so. For he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at me, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at me, but 
I am among you as he that serveth. And you can imagine the Lord pausing at the end of that like I did just then. You see, he said, who, who will be the greatest among you? Let him be your servant. But he said, who really is the, who is really the greater? And they didn't have to answer. He, he, he would know what they were thinking. And of course, everybody would say, well, the greater man is the man seated at the table. He's waiting for the servant to come and serve him. He's obviously greater. The Lord was saying, that's right. But! What a but that was. But! I am here as one that serveth. In other words, work that out. You see, brothers and sisters, it would mean a complete reversal of thinking, wouldn't it? It means a complete turnaround in their thinking. And the truth is all like that. It's a completely opposite way than what you would normally think. The instincts of our human nature are such that they go absolute, diametrically opposite to the ways of God. Who's greater? The fellow that sits at the table. The servant comes up and serves him. He's the lesser. But! I am he that serveth. By word. Wouldn't that have made an impression? He didn't have to tell them who was the greater, did he? Now you come back to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Look what he says here, verse 42. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the cheapest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, you say, that's the same record as Luke. Yes, it, it is. It's the same words that Luke used, but there's a difference, brothers and sisters. You see, Luke said, but I am among you as one that serveth. Here, it's Mark gives him a title. For even the Son of Man. Now, you, you go and ask many people what they think the Son of Man means. And, and you know, for many years, I know I was brought up in the truth and, and we used to be taught that that was the title of the Lord's humility. That doesn't appear like that there, does it? Even the Son of Man. Not because he is, but even though he is. So you see, brothers and sisters, that's not a title of humility, though of course it does mark him out as one of our race, but a very distinct one of our race. See, what did the Psalms say? What is man that thou visitest him? What is man? Or the son of man, whom thou madest strong for thyself, in another place it says. So you see, God, God took cognizance of man. He looked down from heaven and he, and he took cognizance of weak mortal man. And the psalm says he pitieth our frame. He, he saw the need. He saw the need for salvation to come which could never come from mankind. And so what is man that thou art mindful of him? So God took, took cognizance of mankind. And because he did, he visited one of the sons of men. That's what Psalm 8 means. I'm not talking about the same individual when I'm talking about man or the son of man. I'm talking about man in general. But who is there in, in, in man in general uh, that, that God can use? Only one. So he, he, he went and visited him and picked him out, didn't he? Sent him in that sense. He didn't pick him out, he sent him. 
and sent him into the world per medium of his spirit, uh, through Mary, of course, and he came into the world. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And here he comes, and he's the son of man. Now look who he is, brothers and sisters. He is the representative of every man that ever lived. Even the son of man is a servant. Now you look at Hebrews chapter 2, and see how Paul uses that. And you'll see that this is how he's expounding Psalm 8. God plans to fill the earth with manifestations of himself among the human race. And for that reason, he took cognizance of man. So we read from verse 6, where Paul quotes from Psalm 8, and it says, But one in a certain place testifies, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him. No good visiting man in general uh, without Christ because he, 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 he was hopeless. But he visits the son of man and he made that son of man a little lower than the angels, crowns him with glory and honour and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Nothing at all. But now... We see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. See the point, brothers and sisters? So what are we in this hall? Men and women, mankind, what are we? God's taken mindful of us. He's been mindful of us. And he visited the Son of Man that he might taste death for every one of us. Now you say, well, he came then as the servant of God to, to serve others and to die for them. Brothers and sisters, he, he, he had the distinction to do that. That was a distinction. That marked him out as, as infinitely greater than any of us. All of us put together. In the fact that God sent him and obedient to his father to the death of the cross, set him out as the greatest of all in the very act of dying for everybody else, even the Son of Man. And that was a wonderful title, wasn't it? Eighty-five times or more he uses that of himself in the Gospel records, brothers and sisters, calls himself the Son of Man, the most used title ever. In the first chapter of John, you find they called him Rabbi, the Son of God, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, the Messiah, the King of Israel. And when he spoke at the end of chapter 1, he called himself the Son of Man. And in John chapter 12, the Jews said, Who is this Son of Man? Oh, we know him as the Son of God, or some did, or they thought they did, the Lamb of God, the King of Israel, the Messiah. But they said, Who is this Son of Man? Well, he just happens to be the representative of the human race. And even he came to minister. And in the very act of ministering, brothers and sisters, he proved who was the greatest. Because that's exactly what Psalm 8 said. That God was going to visit him to do what no other man could, and that's die for the lot of us. And we stood there, didn't we, in the personage of the apostles. We stood there and watched that, and they didn't even understand it at the time. And he was belittled in front of the whole world as a criminal. And in that, he was distinguished as the greatest human being ever. And there's your pattern. That's the pattern. And he's the one that's going to come and wash their feet. Now, coming back to John, Jesus 
you know, John's recording here what would have gone through the mind of the Son of God. And he would know too, John would know when all things were revealed unto him and he would remember all of this. By the way, brothers and sisters, just think what John remembered. Where do you ever get an account like this one of the Last Supper? You know, John doesn't record, doesn't even record the scene of the Garden of Gethsemane. But I tell you what, in the Last Supper, John 13, 14, 15, 16 and afterwards 17. At 15 they departed from the room, yes, but he's still talking about the, the events of that supper. 13, 14, 15, 16 and 17. Not a bad memory, was it? Of all the detail we get here. And not only the detail, but the, the profound thinking that was behind a lot of the things that the Lord said. Now, having been given all things into his hands, it says that he was come from God and went to God. You see, brothers and sisters, it was, it was all a work from God going to God. It, it never differed. It, it, there never was any difference in that, in that process. In, in the beginning when, the, when he laid the foundations of the earth, when God laid the, the foundations of the world, it was from God and it was going to go to God. That was the whole point of it, wasn't it? As the Apostle says, you know, of him, through him, to him, in that book of Romans, doesn't it? Of him, through him, to him. So he was a work of God in order that he might take the whole of that work back to God. That's the whole point of it, isn't it? That's the whole purpose of creation. The creation was created for no other reason than that, brothers and sisters, and it all came out of God to be in the end, to be absorbed back into God, that God might be all and in all. Now Jesus knew all that, and he knew that part of that creation, matter of fact the major part of that creation was himself. He was a new creation, the beginning of the creation of God, says the Apostle. The beginning of that human creation, which was going to be immortalised to glorify the Father and he is the cornerstone thereof when all the sons of God shouted for joy in the physical creation. Well, here comes the cornerstone of the, of the human creation of men and women glorified in their bodies and in that glorifying God. Well it all came out of God and it's all going back to God. You turn to Romans chapter 1 brothers and sisters which Brother David the other night dealt with and we'll just repeat here a little thought that was brought up. The end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 rather, in the 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the end of that chapter where the Apostle says in verse 26 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. Now you listen to these next few verses. But of him are ye, that is of God, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. He's made those things unto us. It's all been made in him that it might apply to us. Now you work it out. It's all of God. So we say this, 
If Jesus was wise, it's because God made him wise. If he was righteous, it's because of the effect of the Father in his life. That's who made him righteous. And because he lived a holy, sanctified life, it was because of the influence of his Father and no other influence. Now, brothers and sisters, you can't believe that. And redemption. He was dead. Who did that? Who redeemed him out of the grave? He's dead. That's got to be of God, doesn't it? So if he's wise, it's God made him wise. If he's righteous, God made him righteous. If he's sanctified, God sanctified him and God certainly redeemed him because he was dead. That, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. That's from Jeremiah chapter 9. Now I'm just filling out what I believe is in John chapter 13. Knowing that he'd come from God, and was going back to God. It's all because of God, isn't it? Now we get a quotation from Jeremiah 9. Just have a look at it. Absolutely fantastic this is, brothers and sisters. You just read what Paul said about God doing for Jesus Christ, making him wise, righteous, sanctified and redeemed. That even the Lord could not glory in his flesh. He gloried in his Father. Now here comes the quotation. Now just listen to it. Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus saith Yahweh, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this. Now, note these next words. What's he got to glory in? That he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am Yahweh, which exercise loving kindness judgment and righteousness in the earth. Now they're the key words. For in these things I delight, saith Yahweh. Where does Yahweh exercise loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth? He's in heaven. God is in heaven. Where is he exercising those things in the earth? He's exercising them in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and everybody who follows him. That's what he's doing. Now, says Jeremiah, don't glory in the fact that you know that God is, 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 uh, loving, is full of loving kindness, judgment and righteousness, that, that you've come to know that academically. Brothers and sisters, we can only glory when we practice that in the earth. God's up in heaven. And unless we are manifesting those characteristics here, then God's not exercising anything in us at all. That's what Paul's saying. That's why you get Roman. That's why you get in in Roman in First Corinthians one, Jeremiah nine, that no flesh would glory in His presence because people who act like that are doing what God would do, as He does do, as His will is in heaven above. They're practicing here in the earth, and it's not something they know about. They exercise it. They actually do it. Now, a person that does that can say, I know God. We may have a magnificent understanding of God manifestation, underlined. But if we're not exercising those principles, brothers and sisters, we know nothing as we ought to know. That he understands and knoweth me that I actually exercise. I actually do this here. And when a person does that, then they know God because they, they act like him and to act like him is to know him. That's the point. Now, Jesus knows all that. 
So he's got this tremendous perspective. But all things are in his hands because he's the son of man and that he has been given by God, not chosen because he came from God. God sent him into the world to do what no other man could do and he represents the whole world. He knows that. And he knows he does that because he come from God and it's all going back towards God. He's just taking the whole process from beginning to end. Now he knows this. And then argue about who's going to be the greatest. Now let's read verse 4 and 5 of John chapter 13. Now brothers and sisters, I believe that apart from the significance that's in these things, just the writing of them as they are is dramatic. John is here writing painful details. Imagine the embarrassment. Look how it's all written. You read it slowly and carefully. He rises from supper. So he stood up and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now, I believe that John's trying to convey in, in those, the way that that's written the agonising embarrassment of that moment. You imagine if you were sitting there. You know what your feelings are and you know that you're not going to offer to use that water because if you do, then you then that's one out of the twelve. There's only eleven. Who's going to be the greatest among the eleven? If someone else does, that reduces it to ten. So two of you are dropped out of the race. So no one's going to get hold of that water. And he stands up and thinks, what, what's he going to do? And then he takes off his outer garments. He goes and gets a towel. Oh no. Actually girds himself with it. And he goes that well, surely not, he, he's not going to use that water. You can imagine, dearie me, he'd watch him pick up the water and pour it into a basin. No, surely not. But then he begins to wash their feet and then, brothers and sisters, reaches from the, from the towel that's around him, reaches forward and takes off all the dust and uncleanness and, and absorbs that to himself. This is the Lord. Can you imagine that is seen? That's why it's written like that. Detail after detail. Now he took a towel. So he divested himself of any human dignity. Uh, you look at Philippians chapter 2, brothers and sisters. We, we know this reference. in Philippians chapter 2, reading from verses 6 to 8, and we will, we will quote one of these verses from the RSV, which of course corrects a very bad translation here. And speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, he said, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in a form of God, thought it not a thing to be grasped at the equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, 
he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So you see, when he made himself of no reputation in an upper room, and once he got that towel around his waist, he's got the form of a servant. And being found in the form of a servant, he was a servant. Accepted that. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that's the only place in the New Testament where that word for towel is used? Well, there's a lot of words like that, I suppose, that are only used once. But you know what I think that means? That's the only occurrence of it. In other words, nobody ever used a towel like that. And I believe in, in the inspired record that God inspired these writers. It was deliberate that, that word was only used at that towel. Never again do you find it. Nobody ever used a towel like that and no one used it but him. That's what we're being told in that record. And he girded himself with that. Now the only other occurrence of that word girdeth, the only other, one other occurrence of that is in John 21 and verse 7 when, G, when Peter rather seeing the Lord on the shore, having taken off his outer garments and having his loose undergarments there fishing, and when John said, it is the Lord, it says he girded on his fish's coat and leapt into the water. And you see, if you turn to the first of Peter chapter 5, I don't believe Peter could ever forget this incident. And, and he would think back of, of, the, of the day in which he, in, in his haste, and in his reverence for the Lord, girded on his own fisher's coat, brothers and sisters, and leapt into the water. And in the first of Peter chapter 5, we could read the whole section here, but we won't because it has a lot in it. But verse 5, he says, first of Peter 5, verse 5, Likewise ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace unto the humble. Be clothed with humility. And the only other occurrence for that word gird that was used of the Lord is used of Peter when he hurriedly put that, that fish's coat on. And what did he do? Leapt into the water and dragged that boat to the shore on his own, didn't he? Imagine that. Drag the net rather to the shore. Drag the hole on his own. Big Peter. On goes his goat into the water. Raise it up! Well, the other apostles all had a had a row in the boat to get there. And later on in the, that very incident, the Lord was to tell him, Peter, when you were young, he said, you girded yourself and you went wherever you wanted to go. And he's watching him do that. It was a great act of strength what he had just done. The Lord says, Peter, the day will come when you get older other people will put your clothes on and take you where you don't want to go. You know, brothers and sisters, the greater man is the latter one. Not the man who girded himself and dragged the, the net to shore, but the greater one who submitted to the hands of others and who clothed him and took him where he didn't want to go. So Peter learnt the principle, be girded with humility. He would have never have forgotten this incident, brethren and sisters. Never could he forget it. The water that the Lord poured out into that basin would obviously be the one that that man had carried there and he began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, we say, well, the servant washed the disciples' feet. Well, you know, it was even, it was even a lowly form of service. If you come back to the first of Samuel, chapter 25, you get the idea. It, it was really the, the lowliest form of service. 
a wonderful woman was to humiliate herself in this way, or offer to at least. And uh, Abigail, you remember, when David offered to take her unto himself after the death of her churlish husband. In verse 40 of the first of Samuel 25, we read, And when the servants of David were come to Abigail to Carmel, they spake unto her, saying, David sent us unto thee to take thee to him to wife. And she arose and bowed herself on her face to the earth and said, Behold, let thine handmaid be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So, you know, it was a, it was a pretty lowly task, wasn't it? To be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And she was offered greatness. David was to be the king and she knew that. She, she knew that. She told him that. He was going to be the king of Israel. And she was being offered greatness, brothers and sisters. She was being offered to become part of his household, very important part of his household. But she accepted that in all humility, didn't she? To wash the feet of his servants. Now when John records that he began to wash their feet with the towel wherewith he was girded, it's like Paul saying, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the death of the cross. Now Paul doesn't mean by that, brothers and sisters, that at some stage of the Lord's life he, he realised he was a man. He doesn't mean that. You know he doesn't mean that. But what it means is that the Lord was fully cognizant of his position, being found in fashion as a man. He, he was always well and truly aware of what he was by nature. No doubt about that, whatever. And when he had put that towel around him, he knew what he was going to do. He could have held that towel loosely, couldn't he? Could have quite easily put it over his shoulder and taken it off his shoulder and then wiped their feet and probably laid it aside somewhere. But he didn't. He tied it around himself. And while it was girded there, he washed their feet. What was he doing? Well, he was taking all those travel stains onto himself, wasn't he? And Yahweh hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. How did he do that? Uh, the, the Hebrew means to meet on him. Yahweh hath made to meet on him the iniquity of us all. Think about that. All we've ever done wrong. Not only us, but countless thousands of people. It's all met on him. It's all met there. I remember one brother who I, I, I was arguing with about the, the doctrine of the atonement, a man who didn't believe in, in the, the BASF, and he, he wanted to tell me that, oh, you know, when he was upon the cross, that meant that in some mysterious way God pinned all our sins on him, which is ridiculous because I pointed out to him what's happened to all the sins 1,900 years later when he wasn't on the cross. It's ridiculous. It can only mean one thing, brothers and sisters, what Peter said. He bore our sins in his own body. How did he do that? He bore our sins in his own body. First of Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. And that can only mean one thing. That he had in him the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Just like all of us. We can't be... We can't be tempted, we can't sin outside of the exercise of those three lusts, one or the other, can we? Everything we do is comprehended in those three things, isn't it? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye and the pride of love. And he had 
all of those things in him. Never did he act upon them. He was sinless. But he had them, didn't he? And he came into this world like, as it were, born of Mary, girded with that towel, stained for the effects of Adam's transgression, which was passed on to his posterity. And who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? None can. He that is born of women, born unto trouble, says Job. And our Lord Jesus Christ came into a sorrowful world, brothers and sisters, and when he came into the world as a, as a baby boy and he grew up, he got tired, he got hungry, he got thirsty, he could feel pain, he could feel disappointment, he could feel dejected, he could feel all of those things. He was touched with the feeling of our infirmities in every respect and he took all that upon himself. God brought him into that situation, just like wiping those feet. When he stood up there, there would be all the dust and the travel stains of the disciples girded onto him. What a remarkable man. Being found in that way, brothers and sisters, he humbled himself. Now you would think, wouldn't you, that would be the last time he'd ever do that. Well, you know something? And this staggers me, and it's a reference you all know, and I don't know whether we've all ever thought about it much, but you know he's going to do it again in Luke chapter 12. Now, can you imagine it, brothers and sisters? Luke chapter 12. Verse 36. He says, And be ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, but when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. Can you imagine that? And you know the careful use in those two verses... Lord and servants, Lord and servants. There's no question, brothers and sisters, who's the greatest. And here's a performance again of that act of humility. Not this time as a prophecy of what he's about to do, brothers and sisters, but as a memorial, really grand and glorious memorial of what he has done. And when we will sit down at that feast, it, I suppose that the agony won't be like the disciples because we know about it now, don't we? And all of us will be in God's kingdom if uh, we practice God's principles. And if we're there, brothers and sisters, it's obviously we've learned that lesson of humility. So it won't be the same embarrassment. When he rises up to take a towel and girds himself, it won't be that we will be embarrassed, but we will be overcome with admiration and gratitude as he enacts out the very things that had to be done to get us there. In the midst of my brethren, it says in Psalm 22, he would pay his vows in the midst of his brethren. He will give glory to God and pay his vows in our midst, brothers and sisters, and to indicate to all of us how it was and why it was that we're in that kingdom of God. As I say, there won't be any embarrassment, there won't be people speaking up like Peter, Lord, what are you doing? Because we'll all know what he's doing. And we will be reduced to tears, every one of us. Tears of gratitude for this great man who is now, of course, infinitely more greater in the sense that he's immortal. He's immortalised. Standing up and doing what he did in that Last Supper. 
It, it, it's almost incomprehensible, isn't it? But that's what he said there. He will come forth, sit them down, come forth and serve them. Well, it wasn't like that in John chapter 13, was it? And of course, as he moves from disciple to disciple, verse 6 says, He cometh to Simon Peter. Now that would suggest, we can't prove that, but it, it would suggest, brothers and sisters, that others were before Peter. Others preceded Peter. You imagine Peter's horror. How many preceded? We wouldn't know. But whichever way he went around that table, perhaps he went around, you see, we know that John was next to the Lord and, and Peter was either next to John or directly opposite, we're not sure. But if he was next to John and the Lord went the other way, Peter would be right on the end, nearly, of that little group of disciples. And his embarrassment would be growing by the second. Everyone that had their feet washed, Peter would be sitting and wincing at it. Just thoroughly, thoroughly embarrassed by the whole thing. He gets to Peter. Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, you know, there's something to admire in that, isn't there? I mean, nobody else said that. But you know, brothers and sisters, it, it's not always the outbursts of emotion or embarrassment that are the things to be admired. It's the thoughtfulness, you see. And he really questioned the propriety of the Lord's action. But Peter may not have thought like that. But that's what he did. You're going to wash my feet? Well, well he ought to know that the Lord had chosen to do that. You see, we ought to think like this, brothers and sisters. We, when we have a difficulty in the word, especially in the life of the Lord, we, we see some of the things he did. And we may not altogether understand. It's our wisdom to say, well, he did it. Whether we understand it or not, the fact is he did or said whatever we have a difficulty with. We're going to go away and work out why he did it and not the question in whether he should have done it. Isn't that true? You might say, well, I, I wouldn't do that. Well, well, I don't suppose none of us would straight out. But there are things we do and say, brothers and sisters, that in essence when we think about it, we really ask and we're really saying to the Lord, do you really have to do that? As if he did something he hadn't thought about? I mean, there's a lot of things. If you look through the Lord's life, there's a lot of things he did that on the surface seem most peculiar. You think, well, why would he want to do that or say that? But you never question it. Go away and think about it. But Peter didn't go away and think about it. He, he said, Lord, do you really should be doing that? The Lord's answer was, Peter, what I do, thou knowest not now. Now, they, they tell us in the Greek that the emphasis is on the pronouns. Peter, what I am doing, you don't know, is how we read it. In other words, the, the Lord rebukes him in that sense. Peter, don't you think I know what I'm doing? Why should you even question this, Peter? You mightn't understand it. You might be embarrassed, but the fact I've chosen to do it, Peter, you should accept that. There's, there's a reason here. I know what I'm doing and you don't know what I'm doing. But you shall know hereafter. Now, what did he mean by hereafter? I believe two things. Obviously, the fullness of this never came upon Peter uh, until all things came to them to their remembrance after the resurrection. But there was an explanation afterwards, brothers and sisters, and in verse 17, Jesus said, if you know these things, happy after you if you do them. So that they, they should have comprehended it there. Because he did explain. He didn't, he didn't do something mysterious and then sort of wait for circumstances to come about whereby they might work it out. He actually told them all about it he explained it stage by stage what he did 
And therefore, verse 17, at that point, Peter should have known those things. Now, Peter says, Lord, he says, thou shalt never wash my feet. Now, actually, when I looked up the word never, it was rather interesting because you want to do that, when you go home, you look it up, in the word never. Actually, brothers and sisters, it's actually a combination of four Greek words. Rotherham has them all listed out. Or not Rotherham, Strong's rather, has them all listed out. And, and when you put them, sort of, in, the word never in itself makes a sentence with these four words. And it goes like this. Thou shalt never, never wash my feet while the age lasts. You will never, never wash my feet while the age lasts. Now, once again, you measure the comment on the basis of what the Lord is doing. Do you understand me, brothers and sisters? We might, we might say certain things which on the surface sound very good and Peter here seems to be saying, well, Lord, you're my Lord, I'm your servant, you're not going to wash my feet, you will never do it till the age lasts. Standing off from a human viewpoint, we might say that's commendable. But you see what he's saying? Now he's saying, he questioned what the Lord was doing. Now what Peter is going to do, he questions the Lord's knowledge of what he's doing while he is absolutely confident in his own knowledge until the world or the age lasts. So Peter is doubtful that the Lord knows what he's doing at the moment, but Peter is confident that he knows what the Lord ought to do to the end of the age. That's what is inferred in that comment, brothers and sisters, and quite regularly in this record, Jesus does not ask, answer men according to what they say, but what they infer by what they say. So he goes on, he says, Peter, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Now he still hasn't learned the lesson because out he comes and he says, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Now, now you think what he's done now. See, the Lord says, look, you, you, Peter, if I don't wash you, you've got no part with me. Now Peter's still thinking about the Lord acting out the part of a servant I suppose in a, in, a, in a show of humility, for, that, for humility's sake. And he's embarrassed by it. So first of all he questions what the Lord does, then he questions the, the knowledge of why the Lord is doing and asserts his own knowledge to the end of the world. Now, brothers and sisters, he not only wants to tell the Lord what he ought to do, he, ought, he tells him how he ought to do it. He ought to do it better than that. Not my feet only, but my hands and my head. The Lord, brothers and sisters, was a very patient man, wasn't it? And he would, you know, he would see all those human emotions in Peter and they were nothing else but that, really. Because Peter certainly wasn't thinking about what he was saying. If he was bewildered and embarrassed, he should have sat there and should have made the one assessment that was only possible. I don't understand this. I am thoroughly embarrassed by it but he is the Lord and he must know what he's doing, what is behind this, and to keep your mouth shut till you learn. But no, on and on he went until the Lord had to tell him what it was all about, didn't he? Now he didn't have to have all his body and hands and everything washed, brothers and sisters. The Lord said to him in verse 10, 
He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are all ye are clean, but not all. Now you've got two words for washed here. The first word, he that is washed, is a word in the Greek which is quite different now. This is a different word that he's been using. It's a word which means to bathe. To bathe the whole body. The RB, RSB, Rotherham, most other translations all have to bathe. And you see, you see the point, brothers and sisters. Jesus is saying, Peter, he that's had his body washed only needs that cleansing of his feet in the warp of life where he gets stained along the way. We're baptised, brothers and sisters. We have been baptised into our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that baptism is total immersion, but just a little word of caution. I don't like the word, to, you know, to, to substitute the word immersion for baptism. It's not right. We can say quite, quite justifiably that baptism is total immersion, but, but baptism's more than immersion. As Brother Thomas points out, you can put a, a, a white bit of cloth in the clear water and bring it out white. It's not baptised, it's immersed. It's got to get changed. Then it's baptised. It's got to change colour. And, and when we're baptised, brothers and sisters, we're more than immersed. So we, to bathe is really here talking about baptism. And when we've been baptised, we've, be, we've been forgiven for our sins and we, and we have an advocate with the Father that provides for us those mistakes we make along the way. We're going to, going to be baptised again. No need for that. But we need the constant washing of the word. Now you read today, if you've done your readings already, Leviticus chapter 8. And you would have read in verse 6 that when Aaron was, before he was robed to be the great high priest of, our, of the Israel's profession, he had they, Moses bathed him, he washed him. He was completely bathed and then he clothed, he was clothed. And later on when, when Moses gave instructions through Yahweh to put the lava in the court of the tabernacle, it was said that Aaron and his sons was to wash their feet and their hands in that lava as they ministered on behalf of Israel. They did not have to be washed, bathed again. But in the course of making the offerings on behalf of the people, there were stains, brothers and sisters, and they needed to be cleansed. So they washed their hands and their feet. And Jesus said, Peter, you've been washed and that you clean every whit. That's a strong statement, isn't it? Clean every whit. Now, now we've been baptised, but I don't any of us would think that, that we literally clean every whit. But we are. Because you see, brothers and sisters, we've been forgiven for our sins and if we've got faith, if, I-F, if we've got faith in God, and the power of the death and resurrection of our Lord to save, then we have continuing forgiveness of our sins. Our faith does that. We've got to believe that. And we're clean every whit. Because we're forgiven. But we're going to make mistakes again, aren't we? And we're going to make them again until the kingdom comes. And we won't be clean entirely, brothers and sisters, until this nature is changed. But Jesus said, it's clean every whit. You're clean, he said. But he wasn't talking about his nature, he was talking about his walk in the truth because there was his advocate, there was his Lord, there was the one in whom he'd obviously been baptised. I believe the apostles by that very verse would indicate they were baptised by John the Baptist. 
And even if they were not brothers and sisters, symbolically, what that was symbolised, they had already done in their law, they had accepted him, they had been attached to him and become identified with all their misunderstanding that they were his followers. And the Lord was saying to Peter, you don't have to go through that process again, Peter, you made that choice. What you need is every day of your life is to clean those feet. And that's what I'm doing for you, Peter. Don't you understand that? And so we find, brothers and sisters, we're clean through the word. You take John 15. Now we know this reference. Jesus said in the course of this feast in John 15, you're clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. John 17 and verse 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So we're clean, we're sanctified by the word. And we could add to that one Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26. The washing of water by the word. Now you know, brothers and sisters, when you talk to people, I mean brethren and other brethren and sisters, and you, you meet those people who would, who would denigrate knowledge of the Bible, what a ridiculous and idiotic thing that is to do. I mean, here we're told specifically we're clean through the word. If you're ignorant of the word, you are very dirty. There's no other way you can be clean. We're sanctified by the truth. If we don't, if we don't understand the truth, brothers and sisters, we are unsanctified. The washing of the water by the word. If we haven't been washed by the word, we haven't been washed at all. Let's get that into our head. We don't study the Bible, brothers and sisters, to get knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's a cleansing influence. It's a cleansing influence in our life. A constant cleansing influence. And we need that because we're constantly getting unclean. But nonetheless, the influence is there. The work of the Lord is there. The grace of God is there that we can be clean every whit on our way to that kingdom if we've got faith to believe that, to put ourselves in God's hands and to study that word and to come to him in prayer. That's the way, brothers and sisters, and Peter didn't have to repeat being washed again, but he needed constantly. The Lord was showing him, Peter, I need to wash your feet. He's trying to tell him. He says, you're clean, but not all of you. Not all of you. And verse 11 says, for he knew, knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, you're not all clean. The Lord knew that a long time ago, brothers and sisters. Remember John chapter 6, verse 71, when he was in the synagogue at Capernaum after the feeding of the 5,000? Have not I chosen you and one of you is a devil? See, he knew who he was. He didn't tell him who he was, but he knew, didn't he, brothers and sisters? He not only knew because he knew it was all men, but later on we're going to read in this chapter, he knew because the Bible had told him that. He knew that from the Scriptures. Now verse 13. You call me Master. He said, well let's read verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you. Now notice what he did. So he reversed the process. After he'd washed their feet, took off his garment, sat down again. He took his rightful place at the head of the table. He sat down in the Lord's place. So now he's going to talk from the Lord's position. And, and I believe the action would have been deliberate just as he got up and made those deliberate actions. So the reverse of that would have been just as equally deliberate. He would have taken off the towel, put it aside, probably put the water away somewhere, got his own clothes, got them on, and then very, very, dig in a dignified fashion, sat down. Now I'm the Lord. I've always been the Lord. Now he's sitting there. Now he says, you call me Master and Lord. 
Now in the Greek, there's a definite article there before those two words. You call me the Master and the Lord and you say, well, for so I am. I want to show you something, brothers and sisters, that I learnt uh, one Sunday morning when I'd be giving an exhortation, not here, at another ecclesia. It just shows you what careful Bible reading will do. And I, I just finished the exhort and sat. I'm telling you this not, not just to be smart. I want the young people to listen, that you concentrate on what you're reading. But I sat down on my chair and, and the chairman got up and he said, well, brothers and sisters, he said, we, we will take for our reading this morning that very familiar chapter in the First Corinthians 11. And I thought to myself, oh, very familiar. How many times have we read that? And uh, that was a challenge to me. So when he read that that morning, my eyes were glued upon that First Corinthians 11. Let's have a look at it with me. I'd never noticed this before. It had never struck me before because I wasn't reading it carefully enough. But, but that was a challenge to me. Let's look at First Corinthians 11 from verse 20 to, ver- and to verse 32. And if you've got a coloured pencil sometime, you might like to colour this in. Verse 20. This is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Verse 23. For I received of the Lord, that the Lord Jesus. End of verse 26. The Lord's death. Verse 27. The cup of the Lord. The blood of the Lord. End of verse 29. The Lord's body. Verse 32, chastened of the Lord. I'd never noticed that before, brothers and sisters. The one at the end of verse 29, of course, is questionable, but leaving that out, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of them. In a few verses, Lord, Lord, Lord. And why was Paul doing that? I have received of the Lord. What did he receive of the Lord? Yes, all the details of the Last Supper, including, ye call me Lord, and ye do well. So he did. And the chairman had to say what he said for me to look at that so carefully. I'd never read that like that before in my life. And I was transfixed, sitting there, reading there. I thought, well, what a, what a remarkable thing that Paul would do that. Of course, he did it, of course, because each chapter opens up that the head of every man is Christ. We know that. But that's what the Lord said. You call me Lord, you do well. And in giving the details of that feast, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said. So coming back to John chapter 13 then. And you'll notice, brothers and sisters, in verse 14, Jesus reverses the order. He said, you call me master, the word means teacher, or Lord. Now, the word Lord is kurios, means supreme authority. So, I'm your teacher and supreme authority. But now in verse 14, I am your supreme authority and your teacher. They're reversed. Why? Because he wants them to understand that it's the Lord that's washed your feet. He also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. That, that, that's fairly simple, isn't it, brothers and sisters? You know, one, one would almost spoil that by trying to expound something with more detail, wouldn't you? It, it's so profoundly simple that his attitude towards us as Lord towards servant, surely servants can act like that towards each other. That, that, that is so simple. And, and you know, sometimes I wonder that uh, in our study classes, and, and all we do, we are, of course, sometimes very detailed in what we say, brothers and sisters, but it doesn't hurt at times, does it? 
just to stop. Matter of fact, it does a lot of good just to stop and think of the profoundly simple things. And that's profoundly simple. He took off that towel, girded himself, sat in his rightful position. Now here I am, I'm the Lord. I am your Lord, the Lord. Now didn't you ought to reckon you could do that for each other? That's awfully simple. You know, I'd like to think, brethren and sisters, that we could practice that because that's what he goes on to say. He says, look, truly, truly, he said unto you, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Then he said this, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Isn't that interesting? So the servant is not greater than his Lord. That's obvious. And it is equally obvious, neither he that is sent greater than him that sent him. And that last expression means, brothers and sisters, that the Lord hadn't just done that as a pseudo act of humility. He meant what he did. Wasn't as if he just gave a little example as their Lord to the servant that for the very purpose that they might exemplify that. He really did it genuinely and sincerely in recognition that he was a servant to one greater than himself. Now, now you, I think that is powerful when you think about it. You know, we, we, we could do something. We might think to ourselves, why should we do such and such? Because we probably think it's beneath our dignity and perhaps somebody else ought to do it. But we might say in the end, well, all right, uh, we'll do it as an example to somebody else. And that's about all we do it for. But he did it because he genuinely believed that he was a servant of God. And he was not greater than his God. He believed that. And he knew that his God in heaven above had a purpose with the earth. He knew that that purpose involved the salvation of men and women as an integral part of that purpose. And he knew that he had to perform that if he was going to be a willing and an obedient servant. And when he got down on his knees to wash their feet, it wasn't just towards them, brothers and sisters, it was an act towards his God. And he did that with all genuineness. So when we next time think that we're going to do something that's a bit beneath our dignity, ask yourself the question, what dignity? There's only one great dignity, and that's God himself, isn't there? And that's a marvellous statement. Servant is not greater than his Lord. But then, you know, he says at the end of that verse, neither he that is sent greater than him that sent him. And as I explained that to you, and then he says, if you know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. You know, it's the, isn't it, the Apostle Peter who says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's taken from Psalm 34 and some of you may know what that psalm's about. This poor man cried and Yahweh delivered him out of all his troubles. It was a psalm written about David before Achish, king of Gath, when he feigned himself to be mad in desperation to save his life and, and God saved him. And Psalm 34 is the outpouring of a, of a man who was reduced to feigning madness to save his life. He got into the he was, you couldn't be more humiliated than that. And it says, The angel of Yahweh encampeth about those that love and fear him. Taste and see that the Lord of Yahweh is good. 
taste it, brothers and sisters. Paul put it this way, proving what is acceptable, what is that acceptable will of God. Proving it by making your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, if someone comes along and they say, here is a, a cake, and they'll describe it to you and say, you know, it's a marvellous cake, it's got hints, it's got such ingredients in it and it's been made so exquisitely and it's, it really is beautiful. There's only one way you're going to find it out and that's pick it up and eat it. Then you'll know, won't you? Now Jesus said, if ye know these things, happy are ye if you do them. And you know, brothers and sisters, it's an absolute truth for all of those who practice the truth that if you think about it, that you start off by not wanting to do what the demands of the word say because it's not native to us. It just goes cuts right across the grain. And you go through a process whereby you, I'm sort of, not, you might all, not all do this, but it, sometimes the process goes like this. You, in the end you think, well, it's my duty to do it and, oh, well, I've got to do it and you grudgingly do it. And invariably, if you do it properly, you come out of the experience extremely happy about it. And you wonder why on earth, in the first place, you didn't do it without grumbling. Because the experience enriched you, rewarded you, and gave you a wonderful feeling. And you, you went home and you thought to yourself, you know, that's what God would have done. And you realise that you've been walking with God. So you didn't just done something that was right. Now you know it. You know it now because you know that's how he acts. It's like we say, we've we, we got a friend who lives over there somewhere and they describe to us their habitation, their friends, their relatives, their way of life, what they eat, what they do. And we accept what they say, but when we visit them and we do it with them, we come and we say, now I know what that man's on about. And it's true, brethren and sisters. Why can't we practice the truth? You know, if everybody including myself, if everybody in this meeting was to really believe that we came into the truth and it was God who brought us in to bring us finally back to God, not like in the same sense as the Lord, of course, but because we, we are represented by him, that we come into the truth for that reason and that's where we're going to finish, what else matters? What, what about all the things in between that have to do with pride and human dignity? What, 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 what would you compare that to? Well, there's nothing, isn't it? What is it difficult then? to do the menial task, to, 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 to volunteer for the, for the jobs that nobody else wants to do and, and to do the humiliating things. Well, what, what's the problem? And, and when, we, when we finally learn to do that, we come out the other end, brothers and sisters, and, and we may, may still think we're the lowest, but everybody else doesn't think that. And we find ourselves very happy and very contented and we think to ourselves, not because we've chalked up a few merit points, but we think to ourselves, God would have done it like that. His son would have done it like that. That's what he wanted his son to do. And he did it like that. And, and we exercise in the earth, in the earth, the things that God stands for. We're very happy when we do that. Don't you find that in your life? All right, we may not have a lot of those experiences, but brothers and sisters, we've got to try to have more and more of them. Till in the end, we know them and we're happy because we do them.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.